was this uh, experience I was reflecting on this past week, you know, one of those moments you have in life that just kind of etch themselves in your brain. Uh, years ago, uh, as a young man, I was uh, driving on the freeways of Hawaii with my best friend at the time, Frank. And Frank had a, an amazing, amazing, cherried out 1968 Chevy Camaro V8 car. I'm talking this thing was a beautiful masterpiece. Great, flawless black paint job. Windows so dark you could not see in. Beautiful all-white leather interior. This thing uh, was not built for fuel efficiency at all. Nut for nut, it was built for cool efficiency. And when you're 18 in a Chevy Camaro, that's what mattered. And I remember distinctly being on the freeway with Frank, driving, enjoying at the top of life, cruising through as you just push the gas pedal. You can almost see the gas meter going down, sucking all that gas and that V8 engine. No, nothing like today's smart cars, right? You can't even hardly hear them. This thing you could hear a mile away. Cruising down the freeway, enjoying life. As we're getting off the off-ramp to go to Pearl City, which is where I live, and right in front of us cuts this old Asian woman immediately going 20 miles an hour on the freeway. So Frank hits the brake, and we come almost to a crash in the back of this woman's uh, trunk. And so what we do is naturally swerve over to the side to get around her. And what does she do? She drips over again. So by this time, we're blocked behind this Japanese, and just so for the record, I'm Asian, so I can make these comments about Asian drivers. I knew you were thinking it, right? But Asian ladies tend to drive this way. So we're behind this Asian lady in this Buick Century of all vehicles, and then blocked on the other side by another Nissan. So here we are in a waste in this 69 Chevy Camaro going 30 miles an hour on a freeway on-ramp. Finally, Frank zooms around, pulls right up next to this Buick, and I roll down my window, take off my sunglasses, because I'm going to let this woman know. As I look over at her, it's mom. <laughs> As at that moment, the, the complexity of human emotion uh, came home to roost. As simultaneously, I experienced a mixture of things. Number one was, my emba was embarrassment, because Frank had been kind of cussing out this Japanese woman who cut us off, and it's my mom. So a little embarrassing. Number two, fear, because I'm going to get it when my dad hears about this when I get home. And number three, probably the most acute emotional experience I had was the feeling of being exposed, busted. I'm not the man, I've been telling my mom for two years that I became a Christian that I am. And this was a magnificent display of that hypocrisy. As I had that window down and sunglasses in my hand, and there was my mom looking over at me with her racing driving gloves on, I felt so vulnerable and exposed. You know, Forbes magazine said uh, in an interview with the, the top CEOs of the Forbes 500 companies, the number one fear that CEOs have is the fear of being exposed. Not because they're frauds, not because they're doing anything they shouldn't be doing, but there's a fear that the world's going to realize I'm not as competent as I want them to think I am. That, that I don't have it all together like my posh exterior is trying to communicate. I'm not at the top of the game. That I'll be exposed that I'm very much like everyone else, and half the times I don't know what I'm doing. You ever felt that experience? It's a very vulnerable experience, isn't it? 
Have you ever had uh, that, that moment when someone says to you, oh, hey, I saw you the other day, and he moment, momently your heart freezes up and you're kind of wondering, what, what, what? And, and you ask the question, like you really don't care what the answer is, but you say, oh, so, uh, you know, what, what, what was I doing? Because <laughs> you're not sure what's going to come next, and you're afraid of it. You're not going to think they're going to say, oh, I saw you praying with somebody. Oh, I saw you in the Word. You're afraid of I saw you lose it with your kids in the mall. I saw you look at that beautiful young girl longer than you should have. I saw you picking your nose. Whatever it is, <laughs> you're afraid that you've been exposed, that, that the real you is now on display and you couldn't control that, right? That, that's something that Scripture tends to do to us. Scripture is simultaneously a mirror in that when we read it, we see reflected back to us ourselves and all of our imperfections and shortcomings, but simultaneously it's a window in that when we read it, we see through to it to the character and beauty of God. And oftentimes it's both. As we see through to the beauty of God, we see reflected how much we fall short of that beauty. And it exposes us. And 1 Samuel chapter 8 is just one of many, many chapters in the Bible that does this wonderful job of exposing the human heart and pointing us to God himself. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 8, this ingrained predisposition of the people of God, in this case the Hebrews, their ingrained predisposition to replace God's rule in their life, and because of that, an ingrained predisposition to ignore God's words. And because of that, an ingrained predisposition to avoid the holiness that God calls his people to. And as we study it, and as we read it last week so beautifully at our reading service, if we allow God's word, we'll see that it doesn't just expose the Hebrews, but it's exposing us simultaneously. Yeah? So let me pray and ask God to bless the teaching of his word. And we're going to jump into 1 Samuel chapter 8. Pray with me, would you? Father, Lord, being exposed is something we fear. It's something that we don't want to have happen because it feels so vulnerable. Being exposed, we realize that, that we're more vile in our sin than we ever imagined. But because of your word, we realize we're more loved than we've ever dreamed. But in order for us to come to grips with that, we have to see the ugliness of the human heart before the beauty and the glory of God is displayed. And so we're asking this morning as we study 1 Samuel 8, you do that amazing work, that amazing work of calling your people out of the shadows and allow themselves to be exposed so that the light and love of grace can cover them. Would you do that? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your spirit wants to say this morning? In Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, it's been almost uh, eight weeks since we finished our study of 1 Samuel's chapters 1 through 7, so it's been a while. So as we jump into the second section of three sections of 1 Samuel, chapters 8 through 14, I just want to kind of recap briefly by way of review all the things we've covered since we started 1 Samuel back in September. Now, up until this point, 1 Samuel's chapter 1 through 7, had all been about the young prophet by the name of Samuel. We know that in, uh, from chapter 7, verse 15, that Samuel was the last of the judges of Israel. Uh, a judge was a kind of a regional ruler that God would raise up to lead and judge and guide his people in Israel, and Samuel was the last of the judges. 
Through Samuel's ministry, uh, the nation of Israel would go from a theocracy and transition into be a monarchy. It would go from a feudal tribe, so to speak, clans, to a united nation. Now, the writer of the book of Judges, uh, which precedes 1 Samuel by a couple of books to the left, almost hints at the disarray of the people of God that we're going to see in the that we see in the book of 1 Samuel, as four times in the book of Judges the phrase and there was no king in Israel is recorded, almost to allude literary in a literary way that there's going to be a lot of rough times for Israel coming up. And so we see in this, this current state of affairs, as we've studied the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel, number one, we realize from chapters one and two that the entire priestly system at Shiloh was completely corrupt. You remember that Eli, the high priest, was spiritually inept and undiscerning, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, completely wicked and corrupt and bribing and abusing the people of God. So much so that in God's judgment, the entire lineage of the high priestly order in one day was wiped out. You remember 1 Samuel chapter 4, both the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, killed in battle. Uh, Eli, hearing the news, dies of a heart attack. God's judgment is swift and severe. The Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the picture of God's presence with the people of Israel, taken away from the Hebrews, lost at the Battle of Aphek, never to be returned to Shiloh. Although the Israelites were able to get the Ark back in 1 Samuel chapter 6, it never again returned to Shiloh. And that's because as a result of that battle at Aphek, the Philistines had decimated the holy place. The, the, the hub of, of a Hebrew life at Shiloh was wiped out completely. And so the ark never returned again to Shiloh. Now, as a result of that, though, they experienced a, a momentary revival as Samuel led the people of Israel, led the Hebrews into an amazing revival and victory at 1 Samuel chapter 7. Years, years, and years have gone on, however, and now Samuel is an old man. So in those seven chapters that took us about three months to study, Samuel was just a sparkle in his mother's eye to now being a very old man. And again, the nation faces a very uncertain future as chapter 8 opens up. Now they say that, that people are like tea bags and you never know exactly what's in one until you put it in hot water. So now we know the circumstance. Let's see what comes out of God's people. The first thing that comes out is they realize that the people of God have an ingrained predisposition to replace the rule of God. Now, if you were here last week, uh, Kyle and, and Daryl and Jeff did a beautiful job at our reading service, reading all seven chapters of this section. We're not going to do that again since we, we did that, but I will read a few key verses to give you the context. Let me read 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 4 to verse 9. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, verse 7, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign 
over them. So here we have the request. Samuel, you are old. Give us a king who will rule over us like all the other nations. The request for a king is not new. It had been there for quite some time. And the current state of affairs seemed to justify it. Uh, Them fighting back the Philistines was years ago. And the Philistine, the presence and aggression had grown strong again. And even now they have set up a military garrison in Geba in the heart of their land. So imagine if, if South Orange County could represent the, the, the nation of Israel at the time. The enemy himself, imagine taking over the entire of Laguna Hills and putting a military garrison right there. That would have been the picture. In the heart of our land lies an enemy garrison, and we're defenseless against them. You are becoming old. Your sons can't replace you. We need someone in this dire time. It seems ripe for a king. As a matter of fact, they had been asking for a king for quite some time, about 200 years now. Let me read to you briefly from the book of Judges. Judges chapter 8, many of you are familiar with the story of Gideon. And if you went to a Sunday school class, you remember Gideon in the walls of Jericho. Well, this is the same Gideon, year after the fact of of the victories and his ministry that he had. This is what Israel says to Gideon. Judges 8, 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, and your grandsons also. So they're asking for a dynasty. They're asking for a king and a dynasty. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord himself, your God, shall rule over you. You see, the desire for a king was not a new desire. They had been looking for someone to be their king for two centuries at this point, but probably because within the Torah, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament, talks about them having a king. And so it made sense to them to request this king. But God wanted to be clear on what this king should be like as opposed to all the other kings. Let me read that to you from Deuteronomy chapter 17. It'll be on the screens behind me as well. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, as God writes the laws concerning the king of Israel. He says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire, verse 17, many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So that's what a king shouldn't do. Now verse 18, what a king king should do. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." 
And so God had talked about that the, the requirements for what a king would be like. But notice what God says. This king's going to be unlike any other king. This is not a king like the kings around you, like they're asking for in 1 Samuel 8. For one thing, look at verse 16. This king is not to trust in horses. He's not to acquire horses. In the Iron Age, having horses and chariots were the key to victory in battle. And so when he says, you're not to acquire many horses, what the Lord is saying is, your trust is not in your military strength. Your trust is in my deliverance and my salvation. In order to keep you there, I don't want your military to be so strong and powerful. Secondly, you're not to acquire many wives. Again, in keeping an ancient tradition, the way you solidified your kingdom and your reign, expanded and secured your borders, was to have marriages, political allegiances. But secondarily, God knew that as he married these pagan women, his heart would be turned away from the Lord his God and follow after Baal or Ashtoreth or whatever other gods were out there, as we saw happen so often and frequently in the kingdom period. He says, you're not to acquire all these wives because your king should be spiritually pure. Have no eyes for no other god other than the Lord your God. So don't trust in your military strength. Don't trust in your political allegiances. Keep spiritually pure. And finally, he's not to hoard wealth. The second half of verse 17. Don't gather to yourself silver and gold as if that were your provision. Yahweh, he is your provision. So the king was being set up deliberately to continue his trust in God's salvation, to keep himself spiritually pure, and to keep dependent upon God's provision. That's what he shouldn't do, these things. But notice verse 18 to 20 talks about things he should do. To write a copy of the entire word of God. You know, in, in Jewish tradition today, you are either a, as a 12, 13-year-old boy or girl, bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. You are a son or daughter of the law. You are required to memorize the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and recite from memory. So that the law, you were now a son or daughter of the law. That's what a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah is. The king was to do the same. And the reason to do that was in their ancient culture, oftentimes the king was the sovereign. There was no authority beyond the king. The king was the authority and oftentimes deified as a god. Now before you say, how silly these people were, do you realize within our lifespans, there were people who believed their god walked amongst them. My mother was one of them. As a little child, she remembers you couldn't even hear the emperor's voice because the emperor was God himself, and us little mortals could not hear his voice. So she grew up in the empire of Japan, and that was their belief. The point is, even with our own modern world, it may seem different from the Bible, but it's very similar. But in these days, the kings were sovereign. There was no authority above them. God proactively put upon the king of Israel certain requirements so that the king would have to know themselves, at very best, they were merely a vice regent, and they submitted their desires to somebody else. So not only was these commandments to write the law a reminder to the king that he himself was a servant of another, it was also a wonderful picture to the people of Israel that their king was to be a scribe or a scholar of the word of God. That their king was to actually be not just a man of war, but scholarship and serious study. So it wasn't just to be a reminder to the king. It wasn't just to be a picture for the people. It was an example to all of them 
that if anyone in the nation of Israel had an excuse not to have to be burdened by studying the word of God, it could be the king. I mean, he's the king. He's got executive privilege. But not even the king was exempt. And if the king himself wasn't exempt from studying and knowing God's word, how much less everyone in the nation? And so God had been very careful to explain what kind of king and what kind of restrictions and, and things that the king should do were there. So we have the request, but now look at the motivation. Go back to 1 Samuel 8. If you, if you went to Deuteronomy, go back to 1 Samuel 8. Look at verse 7, and then we're going to look at verse 20. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Go to verse 20. That we also may be like all the nations, is what the people of Israel are saying to Samuel. The motivation was in rejecting God so that they could be like all the nations around them. They didn't want God to rule over them. They wanted a man to rule over them. Now, you might notice that there's a little bit of parallels between 1 Samuel 8 and our study of 1 Samuel chapter 4. See, it's, now, now you say, keep in mind, that was decades and decades earlier in the life of the people of Israel at this point. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, do you remember, they were superstitious. Hey, the ark, the magical talisman of God, let's get that, take that in the battle, and God will win the victory for us. They were using superstition to manipulate God's hand. Well, here they are decades later, and it looks more sophisticated. It's political, and we need a king to rule over us, and the king can do rule for people, but it was a, still a substitute for God. So the point is that, on the one hand, it was, one was driven by superstition and manipulation. The other hand, it's still politi politics and substitution. It looks very different on the surface, but it's still the same heart. They were looking to something else to give them the deliverance they only should seek from God. In other words, our external behaviors can look so dramatically different on the surface, but if we just kind of trace that to the heart, the heart is very similar, isn't it? And we see that here. They still were looking to something else to do for them that only God could do. I was talking with uh, uh, some parents from our church this past week, and we're talking about parenting. And this, this doesn't just apply to parenting. This applies to just all of life. But we're talking about how, as parents, we need to be very careful not to focus on the external actions of our kids. Because it, to the degree that we focus on the external behavior, we miss the heart. To the degree we miss the heart, we're going to miss the gospel. And so often, we tend to focus on the externalities, and we forget that the, the gospel is not just about changing the external, it's about changing the heart. But we get caught up in the external behaviors, and here we have another example, completely different on the outside, but it was the same heart, wanting something else to give them what only God could. So let's back up a little bit here. So they say, we want a king, we, we want a judge, we want somebody to rule us. The Hebrew term for judge, shafat, it talks about a kind of governance and rulership. In modern culture, we, understanding the heart of man, at least our forefathers tend to get that a little bit more, separated the, the divisions of power and government, right? So what do we have? Uh, the judicial, the legislative, and then the executive. And they're all separate, so checks and balances. In ancient culture, that wasn't how it was. It was all combined into one. You didn't have a division of power. It all resided in the king or the pharaoh or, or whoever it was. Sennacherib, whatever the title was, it was all combined. Now, in modern culture, because we understand the depravity 
human heart, or we used to at least, we would have, a, we are governed by the rule of law. In ancient culture, it was the rule of man. So everything was combined in one man because that one man was the ex supreme expression of law. And they're saying, look, we, we don't want God to be that in our lives. We want somebody like us. We want a man to rule over us. Now, here's the first point here. Just like the, these ancient Hebrews, we have a predisposition to want to replace God in our lives with other substitutes, don't we? It's, it's never the big obvious things. They're not the huge things, but that's what makes it even more dangerous. They're often the more subtle things. I don't know if you paid attention to the way Adam orchestrated our songs, but almost all the songs we sang this morning was acknowledging the kingship and the authority of God over our lives. We just heard the choir sing, bow the knee, bow the knee, bow the knee. Deliberately making us understand that we worship God. And it's so easy to stand here on a Sunday morning, say, you are my king, leave church, and before you get to the five or Molten Parkway, you are functionally being ruled by another king. You can say, you are my king, and before you get half a mile away, another king has ruled your life, whether it's an attitude of the heart or thoughts you've embraced or maybe a passion or a desire that you want more than you should. Maybe it's a fear or an anxiety, whatever it is. It now calls the shots. You say, what, what, what are you talking about? This is what I'm getting at. Whatever exercises functional control over your life, whatever it is you might say and the great songs we might sing, whatever exercises functional control over your life sets your, your trajectory, your mood, what you're going to do today, how you're going to respond, whatever that thing is, that's God. That's just, that, that, that is worship. Right? That's why worship is not something you can parse out to a religious service on Sunday morning. The definition of worship is that thing that sets your priorities, gives you your values, sets the trajectory, makes you make choices. And if it's a fear or anxiety or thoughts or attitudes, that is the God you worship. That is what is getting at here. Now, if, if you're not a Christian and you're visiting with us today, I wonder if you've asked yourself or been so bold as to ask a Christian that you know why they act one way when you know that Christians should act another? The answer is right here, my friend. Because the human heart has a predisposition to replace God with other substitutes. And because we have that predisposition to do that, we also have a predisposition to ignore God's words. Look at verse 19 the first half of it, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel as he gave them the word of God. I want to read to you verses 10 through 18 as Samuel says, okay, God, you want to give him a king? I'm going to tell him what you say a king's going to do. Verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of his thousands and commanders of his fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. 
He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves, verse 18. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you you in that day. Did you notice the phrase that I was emphasizing? Anybody pick it up? (laughs) He will take. He will take. Six times. He will take. 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 The irony of this is the reason they wanted a king was a king to protect the very things God says the king's going to take. And they didn't even see it. And contrast this with the authority and kingship of God and his promises to his people from Genesis 12 through 15. I will give you sons. I will give you daughters. I will give you land. I will give you blessing. I will give you harvest. I will give. I will give. I will give. But they didn't want to hear it because their hearts were already set on what they wanted. And they were going to ignore the words of God. Even though the contrast could not have been more stark, they would not see it because of the predisposition of their hearts to replace him and now to ignore him. God warned them. God warned them. You don't want this. You say you want it, but trust me, you don't. This is what's going to happen, and they ignored him. Look what James says in the New Testament. James chapter 1. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. What's James saying there? What James is saying is just as it's absolutely absurd for a man or woman to look in a mirror, see their face, and then turn away and forget what they look like, it's just as absurd to hear the words of God and then do nothing about it. He says, it's absurd, it's unheard of, but that's what he's talking about. You deceive yourself. So how can you hear the words of wisdom, words from God himself, and you go, meh, I think I'll do my own thing. I think I know better. Yeah, scripture's clear, but I'm not going to abide by that. I don't like that. You see, one of the key applications that we can get from 1 Samuel 8, this text, is that our problem, just like these Hebrews, our problem is not one of information. We don't need to know more things as if the key to a successful Christian life was Bible memorization, church attendance, and good theology. That's not the problem here. The people of Israel literally got God to write things in stone and gave it to them. God ministered to them. God spoke to them for centuries. The problem wasn't uh, one of intellect. The problem was one of morals. At the end of the day, you're not going to be king. I'm going to be king. I am not bowing the knee. See, humanity doesn't have an information problem. It's very clear. It's like Mark Twain says. I'm maybe not a biggest fan of Mark Twain, but he's got some insight. He says this, the problem I have with the Bible is not that it isn't clear. The problem I have with the Bible is that it's painfully clear. Well, he gets it. (laughs) He gets it. He may not like it. He may not submit to it, but he gets it. And that's why knowledge alone doesn't save. It is a living, active faith that says, I'm going to bow the knee. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. I love how Jesus is just so cut and dry. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Hmm? 
<laughs> I can almost see him saying that. Why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man who builds a house, dug deep, and laid the foundations on a rock. And when the flood arose and the storm stream broke against that house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. See, because of our predisposition to replace God's rule, it leads to a predisposition to ignore him. It is not a matter of needing more information. Our problem is we need a rescuer. We need someone who will rescue us. I don't need to know more information. That's not the problem. The problem is I don't want to bow the knee. I have a pre-ingrained predisposition to fight against God, and until I come to realize that, I will never understand grace working towards my life to change me. That's what I need to realize. One of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Robert Robertson, he understood this. Listen to the lyrics. We sing it all the time. I want you to sing it with new meaning now. He says, Jesus sought me when a stranger. I didn't go looking for him. I wasn't the one looking for God. God, Jesus, sought me when I was a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue there's that word. He to rescue me from danger, interposed, or he interjected, he brought in as a substitute his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, every day, you need the gospel, you need grace today, like the day you became a Christian, if not more. Every day, I'm constrained to be, let that grace like a fetter, right? A fetter in the 18th century, iron shackles that bind you that control where you go. Let that grace, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Do you feel the pull of this world? I feel it every day. I am prone to wander, God. I don't want the things I should want. God, change me, even if I don't want to be changed. Violate my will. Do what it takes to make me what I need to be because I'm not going to do it on my own. You see, the Christianity is not about me being more moral and pulling myself up by the bootstraps. Christianity is not bad people being good. If that's your conception of Christianity, that is going to be a hard yoke to bear. Christianity is about dead people becoming alive. It's a categorical difference. And the only way that happens is that somebody somewhere does something in me. And Robertson says, here's my heart. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above, because I won't. I, I recognize my predispositions, and I'm powerless to do anything about it. I need you, Lord. Robertson gets it. I need you to do this work. Finally, so our predisposition to replace God leads to a predisposition to ignore him, which leads to a predisposition to avoid personal holiness. I look at verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of the Lord, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. See, by, by the phrase avoiding holiness, I don't necessarily mean the ethical aspect of it. I mean it in its truest sense. The word chavod means to be set apart, heavy, to be distinct. We don't like to be distinct. <laughs> we, we'd like to blend in this world. 
We like the path of least resistance. Like, man, life is hard enough. Taxes. I got an unreasonable boss. It's tough. I don't want to have to shake things up for the kingdom. We, we want to just kind of cruise. We want to be culturally accepted. And, and as you can see in the culture, that, that, that's not going to last much longer. We, we can't blend in anymore. The changes that's happening in our culture, I think, will be really bad for cultural Christianity. But I think it's going to be fantastic for the gospel. I think it's going to be fantastic. Because there's not going to be a benefit in our culture to being a Christian much longer. And we're being challenged by that. Lord, I don't want to blend in. I, I, I want to be who you've called us to be, but sometimes we don't want to be distinct. The Israelites were saying the same. <laughs> After all, God, it is the Iron Age. We should have a king like everyone else and be like all of our peers. But God says, look, I never called you to blend in. Actually, I called you to be distinct so that when people look across the world, they can say there's something unusual about these people in a good way. Deuteronomy 7, 6, the Lord says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Exodus 15, or 19, Now therefore you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God's people, the Hebrews or us, we cannot escape being different. We can try, but we can't escape it if you're going to follow the Lord. Theologian Dale Davis says this as I begin to conclude. Who wants to stand out in a crooked generation anyway? Why should the church or Christians individually have a different definition of success? Why should there be a certain detachment in our outlook? Why a winsome purity in our conversation? Why faithfulness in marriage or chastity before it? Why a seeking of justice for the helpless or a flowing of compassion to the neglected? Why a passion for worship over entertainment? Why prefer to enjoy God than to pine and wallow after self or personal fulfillment? Those last two word sentences are riveting. Why a passion for worship over entertainment? Why to prefer and enjoy God rather than wallow after fulfillment? Why? Because if you're a Christian, you serve a new king, a different king. You serve the true king. Because if you're a Christian, you've come to the point where what that means is you say, I bow the knee. I am not a king. Stop, I'm stop pretending to be the king. There, we're not in a world full of a billion mini kings. There's only one king, and it's not me. It's you. And king of kings is not an elected title. I don't, get to, I don't get to have a filibuster. I don't get to argue with you. Your king is God king or president to you. Is he a president that you can disagree with and say, you know, I think I'm going to get my Congress. We're going to get a, a committee here, and we're going to fight you on this. God doesn't intend to be president, folks. God is king, and that's not an elected title. But unfortunately, because of sin, we have these predispositions. But one day, a new Israel would begin, and a man who would never replace God's rule, a man who would never ignore God's words, and a man who would never avoid God's holiness would come on the scene. And he calls all people of all nations and all tribes, if you want to be a part of this new Israel, you come alongside. I did the job. His name is Jesus Christ. 
And because of him, all the predispositions of our heart, they're still there, but he will eradicate them. More importantly, he will substitute those for the predispositions of his heart. And that's what the New Testament, that's what the gospel promises, a new heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we read 1 Samuel 8, uh, expose. Yes, it's a different culture, a different time, but the human heart does not change. And so, Holy Spirit, as you have changed the hearts of your people throughout history, both biblical and historical, would you change our hearts? Father, help us to recognize the the dispositions that, that live within us so that we might confess them and repent from them, give us the gift to turn from them. And Father, we pray that we find ourselves in Jesus Christ, the one who never substituted you, the one who never ignored you, the one who never avoided you, but embraced you wholeheartedly. It's in him and him alone we have our righteousness, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The message titled The King Thing was given by Pastor Rick Rodeheber at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is part of a series from the book of 1 Samuel. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.ccclh.org.